Hello everyone and welcome to the next episode of the Disclosure Podcast. I hope you're all doing well and I also hope that you enjoyed the last episode of Dr. Melanie Joy and you enjoyed the discussion and conversation we had about communication and effective advocacy and what that can look like in terms of how we speak to others, both non-vegans as well as vegans as well. So I hope you liked that one. In this week's episode, I'm speaking with Dr. Michael Greger um, and I'm just going to do a little introduction to Michael Greger before we cut into the actual video itself. But before I do the introduction, just a little bit of housekeeping at the beginning to say, firstly, if you like the podcast and you've listened to the podcast before and you've enjoyed doing so, then please do leave a review. Um, it does mean the world to me and I really appreciate it. I like reading them. I like hearing what you guys think and, and seeing your feedback about the discussions I've had and, and the conversations that have been taking place. And also, if you enjoy the Disclosure Podcast, I also do a monthly Disclosure Podcast Q&A for my patrons. So it's a patron-only podcast edition. And so if you sign to my patron, you can support the activism that I do, and you also get access to this Q&A where my patrons ask me questions, and I hopefully give insightful and thoughtful responses back to those questions. And we also have a Discord server as well. We chat about different issues. Obviously, we've been talking a lot about what's happening right now, which is the pandemic, and uh, sharing lots of articles and resources surrounding exactly what's been happening. Let's get into the podcast, and I'll just do a little introduction for, for Michael Gregor, because... A lot of us will know who, who Dr. Michael Greger is um, from Nutrition Facts and from his work um, as a physician focusing on, on solving the, you know, the epidemic of chronic disease through uh, lifestyle changes, particularly a plant-based diet. So a little brief overview of Dr. Greger. So he's a physician and a New York Times bestselling author, as well as an internationally recognized speaker on nutrition, food safety, and public health issues. A founding member and fellow of the American College of Lifestyle Medicine, Dr. Greger is licensed as a general practitioner specializing in clinical nutrition. He is a graduate of the Cornell University School of Agriculture and Tufts University School of Medicine. In 2017, Dr. Greger was honored with the ACLM Lifestyle Medicine Trailblazer Award and became a diplomat of the American Board of Lifestyle Medicine. Now, I'm sure a lot of you have heard of his books. He's got a few books, How Not to Die. But actually, one thing that many of you maybe aren't aware, and I didn't know this until the pandemic, was that Dr. Greger is actually the former director of public health and animal agriculture for HSI, so Humane Society International. And a lot of his work when he was working for HSI was about infectious disease, so things like mad cow disease, but also bird flu and swine flu. And in fact, he wrote a book back in 2006 called Bird Flu, A Virus of Our Own. Own hatching. And so in, in this week's podcast episode, we're going to talk about the links between using animals and infectious disease and also talk about the problems related with bird flu and why that could potentially be the next pandemic, something we've been scared of before, but actually looking forward to something we should continue to be scared of unless we make radical changes in the way that we all live as a species. All right, well, I hope you enjoy this week's episode and I'll cut right into it now. All right. Well, hi, Dr. Gregor. Thank you so much uh, for joining me on today's podcast. Uh, I greatly appreciate it. And uh, thank you for all of the, the work you've been doing recently um, in spreading the message about pandemics and also encouraging people to, to kind of think beyond just what we're told, I suppose, about where these pandemics start and originate from. Um, so yeah, thank you for joining me. Happy to be here. Excellent. Um, so uh, the infamous kind of speech you did maybe, what, 12, 13 years ago now is that kind of prophetic um, almost conference you did where you were talking about pandemics and, and ways to prevent pandemics. Uh, it, it, since you've done that talk, there's been two pandemics. Of course, we're currently in one. Are you surprised that, that there's been two pandemics in the past decade? Is that, does that come as a shock to you? Well, you know, predicting that there's going to be another pandemic is like predicting the sun's going to come up 
the next day. I mean, the, 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 it's always when, never if. Uh, but then the next question is how bad? We got off lucky last time with the 2009 swine flu pandemic. It was only a category one pandemic. Only about a half million uh, people died. But what we learned from that pandemic for the first time is that flu viruses can jump directly from pigs into the human population, circulate uh, throughout the world. We may not be so lucky next time. Yeah, absolutely. And so with, with the current pandemic, it's, it's obviously been traced or likely has been traced back to the, the meat market in Wuhan. Now, I was in the US a couple of years ago and I came across these, these kind of live animal markets in Brooklyn. There's also some in, in Texas when I was there. What, what's the likelihood of something similar originating from one of these live animal markets in somewhere like the US? Yeah, you know, I, I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, it's easy for us kind of xenophobic Westerners to uh, kind of poo-poo these, you know, uh, back alley wet markets in Asia. But for example, the last pandemic was largely made in the USA from industrial pork production uh, facilities in the United States. And there are these live bird markets, particularly in the Northeast, also California here in the States, that have uh, had concerning outbreaks of this, uh, these H7 viruses, which have infected people. There was a New, York infe- New Yorker infected in 2003. Then in 2015, shelter cra- cats across um, New York uh, became infected with this bird flu virus that was found uh, on those live animal markets. Uh, one of the veterinarians, one of the shelter workers also uh, got infected. So this is a human adapted virus, has not yet um, uh, acquired the necessary mutations to transmit human to human effectively, which would trigger the next pandemic. But certainly live markets anywhere, um, uh, Asia, the United States, Europe, anywhere else, uh, are risk factors and they should all be shut down. I think it's important to realize that even now in China, when supposedly these live markets are shut down, no, they just shut down the raising of wildlife meat. So the wildlife trade for fur, still ongoing. Wildlife trade for uh, traditional uh, Chinese medicines, still ongoing. Can still raise these animals, slaughter these animals, sell these animals, but just not for meat. And all farm animals are exempted. In fact, they even went in and changed the definition of like frogs and turtles to livestock, to farm animals so they could continue um, to market them. And so there are still these massive live bird markets, um, which, um, in which case, at some of these markets, you can actually sample bird flu viruses straight out of the air. So even walking through one of these markets could be dangerous. The same thing was found um, at uh, um, fairs here in the United States with swine flu viruses. There's so much virus being excreted by these animals just gets in the air, causes people to get sick. And the more people that get sick, the more animals get sick, the more kind of pandemic spins at the roulette wheel um, is just locking in the right mutations to then finally spread into the human population. So we really need to, to recognize that how we treat animals can have global public health implications.
Yeah, I mean, one of the things that, that, that shocked me is, is after the, this current pandemic started, I, I was going, just typing into Google, swine flu and, or avian flu, and just going on, on, on news that was just in the past week or past few weeks. And it's all the time. There's been outbreaks of a new, um, I think it's H5N6 strain in Germany of bird flu. Um, and and it, it just happens all the time, everywhere. And I suppose the one thing that, that I mean, I, I know that you're, you're concerned about from things that you've spoken about before is one of these strains maybe mutating into something that's similar to H5N1 in terms of the fatality rate. So kind of combining like a highly infectious strain of avian influenza with a highly, you know, a high fatality uh, rate strain of avian influenza. Yeah, so there's an important parallel here with coronaviruses. So we, until 2002, we thought all coronaviruses good, could do was cause the common cold. Um, so we knew they were transmissible from person to person, but they just caused the sniffles. Then, boom, 2002, SARS emerges from these wet markets, um, uh, these civet cats being raised um, in Guangdong province in China, in South China. And... All of a sudden, um, spreads around the world to uh, um, over 20 countries, um, infects, uh, you know, about 8,000 people, 800 of which die. This is about a 10% mortality rate. All of a sudden, coronaviruses could be deadly. We had no idea. Mm -hmm. And then the thought is, well, wait a second. If it can be transmissible and deadly, well, then there's no reason that this class of coronaviruses couldn't then trigger a global pandemic. And we got another warning call in 2012 with the emergence of MERS linked to intensive cattle farming, uh, excuse me, camel farming in the Middle East. Another um, deadly coronavirus disease killed about one in three. We kept having warning sign yeah. after warning sign. But of course, we didn't listen. And in fact, the wildlife markets were shut down after SARS in China, but uh, poorly enforced rapidly reopened and civet cats were back on the menu within months. And so similarly, the current wildlife ban in China is still only set to be temporary as these whopping loopholes. If we don't permanently change the way we interact with animals, then we are just going to look at more and more pandemics coming down the pike. I mean, we are in unprecedented era in human history. We've had dozens of newly emerging and re-emerging diseases, most of which coming from animals. You know, the AIDS virus blamed on the bushmeat trade in Africa, killing chimpanzees. We have SARS and COVID-19 for the wildlife trade, these live animal markets. Um, uh, we have, uh, you know, swine flu, mad cow, when we started these cannibalistic uh, feeding practices. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, the deadliest plague in history was a bird flu virus that emerged from the, um, uh, the uh, trenches in World War I to kill 50 million people in the pandemic of 1918. But from a virus standpoint, we have those same trench warfare conditions today in every industrial chicken shed, in every industrial egg operation, confined, crowded, stressed, but by the billions, not just millions. And now, as you said, we have viruses H5N1, H7N9, um, that could kill millions around the globe. Um, if they lock in those necessary mutations. Right now, the CDC um, considers H7N9, which rose to ascendance in, in uh, 2013, killing about 40% of the people infected as our greatest pandemic risk. Um, uh, they uh, recently uh, released a, a threat scenario suggesting millions of Americans could die um, uh, with an H7N9 uh, pandemic. And so the, the silver lining here of COVID-19 
is that hopefully the world will wake up and uh, look around after, uh, you know, uh, millions of lives lost, billions locked down, trillions of dollars lost around the world, um, finally sit down and take very seriously what those of us um, in this movement have been saying forever, and that is we need to accelerate the movement um, uh, towards plant-based milks, plant-based meats, plant-based egg products, not just for human health, um, for chronic disease sake, not just for global warming. Uh, global, global health is taking a whole nother, uh, you know view now. Now there's pandemic risk as well. Um, and so we just need to, to move away towards healthier products, healthier for ourselves, healthier for future generations, and healthier in terms of reducing the risk of pandemic infectious disease. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, it really is this kind of, it's the key to solving so many of the world's current issues is just simply changing our lifestyles and, and how we use animals. Uh, one thing that I, th I think scares me about the 1918 pandemic is the fatality rate was only between two to 3%. But if we're talking about a strain of avian influenza that has a 40% fatality rate, I mean, the, the, the amount of damage that that could cause is, is almost unimaginable. And we think about the, the social upheaval that's happening right now because of COVID-19, but Imagine if the same virus right now was killing 40% of the people that it hit and was being completely non-discriminatory. It wasn't just people with underlying health conditions or of a certain age. It was anyone of any age, 40%. I mean, society would, would collapse. That, I mean, I'm so glad you brought that up. I mean, this COVID-19 is just a dress rehearsal, right? I mean, look, doctors are still showing up. Um, uh, the, uh, the food is still being restocked on grocery store shelves. The internet may be slow, but it's still on. The electricity is still on. We're still getting, uh, you know, clean drinking water, right? All of that can go away um, if even suffering like 25% of the workforce out. Um, and so, right, there's no reason. Um, in fact, the, the World Health Organization actually convened a panel of experts to ask the question, wait a second, would a virus like H5N1, H7N9 necessarily have to ratchet down its lethality, its flip of the coin human lethality down um, to, to, in a pandemic situation? Um, uh, because the worst pandemic in history was only 2% with the last bird flu virus jumping the species barrier. And the answer was, not necessarily. In other words, the nightmare scenario that you just described. Um, so here in the state, 60 million Americans, 60 million Americans get the flu. Imagine if it turned deadly. Um, and uh, so instead of, um, so, uh, you know, even here um, in the U.S., probably the worst case scenario estimates for COVID-19, half a million American deaths. You know, that's, you know, uh, like, you know, one in 3,000 uh, people. What if instead um, it was, you know, uh, you know, 10 times worse, 20 times worse, um, uh, one in uh, uh, 15 dead, uh, one in six dead, 25 times worse. Um, I mean, th this is, uh, that's why it's so critical. Um, and that's why uh, one, I mean, can't emphasize enough the risk that the world is taking, um, and uh, you know, it may hopefully won't come to this, but we don't tend to shore up the levees until after a disaster, and it may take a pandemic that wipes out millions of people before the world realizes the true cost of cheap chicken. I mean, so, yeah, exactly. I, mean, I think that's the, the scary thing, isn't it? Is we we hope that we 
we listen to, to what's, what the world's telling us and, and what these infectious diseases should be able to teach us. But I guess the risk is that we just go back to business as usual when it dissipates. Why, why do you think that it's not something that our governments do take more seriously when the risk is so catastrophic? I mean, it, apart from climate change, the United Nations says, it says it's the second biggest risk to, to human health. So why don't we take it more seriously as a, as a risk? Well, because they're very important moneyed interests in, in, involved. So, for example, here in the States, we continue to feed millions of pounds of medically important antibiotics to uh, farm animals by the truckload, something that every single human health organization on the planet is allied against. You say, wait a second, if every public health a uh, 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 group on the planet says it's not a good idea to be feeding these critically important drugs to animals just to fatten them faster for slaughter. Then why isn't it be done? Why hasn't it been done? Because they're going up against two of the most powerful um, industries: the pharmaceutical industry that sells all these drugs and big ag, the animal mm. agriculture industries, they have so much power hold, so much a stranglehold over our political system that even things that are just so slam dunk, common sense, you know, scientific consensus, people are dying or being uh, consistently ignored. Um, but again, there's the silver lining with COVID-19. Hopefully, we'll get a pandemic that's just bad enough that people will pay attention so that an even worse pandemic can be prevented in the future. But, of course, um, uh, not bad enough. Um, uh, I mean, to, the, the minimum, yeah. minimum amount of suffering yeah. that will actually get us to prevent an even larger amount of suffering later on. I mean, that, that is the hope, isn't it? I think one of the risks is, is that potential of, of people, as we say, employing that almost xenophobic tendency of just accusing Chinese culture of being the problem and, and overlooking the fact that industrialized agriculture in any in anywhere across the world plays a part in these pandemic risks. I suppose if we don't change the 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 chance for pandemic, it's not really an if, it's it's always going to be a when, right? Like as long as we do what we do. I mean obviously the industrialization of, of agriculture isn't the only risk potential, but it's one of the biggest drivers in risk potential. And so I guess if we don't change, then it will always be a matter of when, when the next one happens, how bad will it be as opposed to this, you know, otherwise we're just playing that fingers crossed game, aren't we? Just hoping that it never happens. But, but of course, mathematically, it always must do at some point if we don't change. And it's getting worse and worse. Never before have we seen flu viruses. Uh, one of the few viruses capable of infecting literally billions of people within a matter of months. Never have we seen a flu virus with an Ebola-like lethality. 50% there are strains of Ebola that only kill 50%. That's what we're facing with something like uh, with some of these bird flus. And there's no biological reason that they couldn't trigger a, a, a pandemic. Even the coronaviruses, again, MERS, one in three have died. We've gotten it. SARS, one in 10. Um, currently with COVID-19, probably we're looking at about a 0.5% case fatality rate. Um, and so, I mean, that's why it could just be so much worse. So as devastating, and not to underplay uh, how devastating COVID-19 is, uh, but I mean, it could get so much worse. And so that, I think, is the message um, that uh, public health professionals have been shouting from the rooftops for decades and need to get out there 
The American Public Health Association, the largest and oldest association of of public health professionals in the world, has called for a moratorium on factory farming for more than 20 years. Mm. Um, uh, The Pew Commission on Industrial Animal uh, Production, the same thing. we got to ban some of these practices like gestation crates and battery cages with cram animals um, together. You know, when we overcrowd animals in these cramped, filthy football field-sized cages to lie beak to beak or snout to snout atop their own waist. It's just a breeding ground for disease, right? The sheer number of animals, uh, the, the the overcrowding, the stress crippling their immune systems, the, the ammonia from all the decomposing waste burning their lungs, the lack of fresh air, the lack of sunlight. I mean, put all these factors together. You have the kind of perfect storm environment for the emergence and spread of these so-called super strains of influenza. These factory farms are a public health menace, but it may not be enough just to, you know, tinker around the edges and change some of these worst practices. Uh, Maybe we really need to shift entirely away um, from from animal agriculture um, entirely. And there is hope on the horizon. No longer are these plant-based meats just some kind of niche market for vegetarians. Now, some of the biggest meat processors in the world, Tyson, Purdue, Smithfield, biggest pork producer in the world, just released an entirely plant-based line of products, right? Look, they, they're just in the, in the business of making money. If they can make as much money um, selling plant-based meat than any other kind of um, protein, they'll, they'll do that. And so, I mean, that I see is, is the, the, the glimmer of hope on the horizon is that uh, the, there may be a market solution to this after all. Um, and cultivated meat, another possibility, right? Growing meat from, you know, muscle cells in a lab. You don't have to worry about uh, fecal pathogens like salmonella E. coli if you're making meat without the guts. You don't have to worry about respiratory viruses when you're making meat without the lungs, right? Now, I'm not saying these are healthy personal choices, right? Meat is meat, but from a pandemic risk standpoint, zero risk. Yeah. And I think I think that... that probably surprises a lot of people is, I mean, we're in something called the age of the plague now, right? Because of, of, of industrialized agriculture. But before the 1970s, a lot of people were talking about how we kind of gone past infectious, really like the post-infectious disease era. You know, we'd eradicated smallpox and so we didn't need to worry about it anymore. And then because of our own doing and our own gluttony for these products and, and for cheap products, we've created potentially well, the worst era of infectious disease that's ever existed, just as we thought we'd come out of it. And yeah. Yeah. Just when we thought we conquered infectious disease, we thought it was going to be a very dull field, right? Uh, unprecedented emergence. Now it's not just animal um, agriculture, uh, deforestation has also brought some of these uh, like uh, Rift Valley fever, Lassa virus, um, some of the, you know, which, which uh, um, boosted by the bushmeat trade, like Ebola um, in Central Africa. There's a number of uh, South American hemorrhagic fever viruses that come when we um, are, are clear-cutting the forest down there. Livestock can then act as amplifying vessels um, for tick-borne diseases, mosquito-borne diseases, uh, to take these primate viruses and spread them in the human populations. Um, uh, you know, antibiotic use um, uh, also plays a role um, in, in these uh, emergence of these uh, new emerging diseases that we can no longer treat with our armamentarium of, uh, of antibiotics. So, but they, what, what all these factors share is that these are changes in the kind of human-animal interface. You know, animals were domesticated 10,000 years ago, but never before 
um, did we see these kind of um, changes that we're seeing today. And unfortunately, we're suffering the consequences. That's why we really need to, uh, to shift gears and move away um, towards healthier production. And it, it's interesting you said about we domesticated animals such a long time ago, but I think I remember it was you who was saying about how we could trace back the origins of, say, influenza to the domestication of ducks oh, 4,000 oh, years ago. Right. Oh, yeah, no, no, no. It's really important to realize yeah, bird flu viruses have existed harmlessly for millions of years, right? Harmless to both birds and people. Very important to understand. In aquatic birds, the virus is perfectly adapted. Um, what's called total evolutionary stasis, harmless. But when thrown to a new environment, land-based birds like chickens, um, like which you can get at these uh, live animal markets, then it quickly has to start mutating to adapt to its new host. Because chickens aren't paddling around in the pond, um, this intestinal bug has to spread to the lungs, become an airborne virus. So, you know, goes into chickens as an aquatic virus, but comes out as the flu, as it adapts to terrestrial um, uh, um, uh, um, birds, um, it also adapts to terrestrial mammals such as ourselves. And so until, um, uh, you know, birds were domesticated, waterfowl were domesticated, there was no influenza. We never had measles until we domesticated um, uh, um, livestock. We never had uh, tuberculosis. We, I mean, uh, many of the greatest plagues in history came from uh, when we, uh, you know, when we, uh, you know, uh, bridled these animals. I mean, how common could the common cold be um, if there's just some, you know, wild ungulates out on the plain? But when we're um, blocked and bridled um, close to human contact, they can jump species and rapidly adapt. However, we have uh, that, that, that was the first age of, uh, of disease. Um, uh, and then came the Industrial Revolution. Then it was chronic diseases that really took the forefront. This is what I've been working on for about the last uh, decade of my life. You know, heart disease, the epidemics of obesity and high blood pressure, which, um, uh, which are also tied, ironically, to eating the same diet, right? Yeah. Um, uh, and putting us at higher risk for um, infectious diseases like COVID-19. Now we're in the third age with these emerging and re-emerging infections, again, also tied um, uh, to agriculture. So we, I mean, you know, it's the food. You have to go back and think how we can, you know, what we can do to prevent these in the future. You know, now in the age of commercial global, uh, you know, airline travel, a virus can get out of our grasp within a matter of days. So we really have to prevent these diseases in the first place. Yeah, exactly. And so you're writing a new book at the moment. Is that correct? And it's it all about- be out May 26th, How to Survive a Pandemic. Nice. I'm really excited to be able to use my infectious diseases expertise, yeah. um, uh, um, which, you know, uh, I stopped working on about 10 years ago because no one seemed to care about the threat of a pandemic, but, but that's changed now. Um, and so I can use my infectious disease background um, uh, to talk about the pandemic survival and prevention. Excellent. Have you seen in, in, in the 10 years or so that, well, in the 10 years or so that we've been just talking about, have you seen a change in the conversation? Is there more of a discussion surrounding whether or not animal farming should simply be eradicated as opposed to preventative? You know, because obviously we talk about biosecurity a lot, um, but biosecurity in and of itself is never going to be a, a good deterrent from these pandemics start or even just these outbreaks from starting. So oh, have, have you seen yeah, conversations no, no. changing? Yeah, no, biosecurity in industrial animal production, I mean, is, a, is, a, is wishful thinking. There are mm. massive inputs and outputs inherent to, you know, industrial poultry production or pork production, water, feed, waste, 
uh, provide, um, uh, you know, routes for introduction, release of the virus. High volume ventilation fans are required to keep, you know, these hundreds of thousands of birds cooped up and blow aerosolized dust, dander, viral particles out into the surrounding countryside. You can pick up um, uh, swine flu viruses a mile down, downwind outside of these facilities. Uh, look, you can't keep flies out of a factory farm. They've been found to carry uh, influenza viruses. It's really just um, wishful thinking. Um, and so we really, we just have to, you know, uh, not present the virus with this all-you-can-eat buffet of 45 billion new viral ho- feathered viral hosts every yeah. year, another billion curly-tailed test tubes every year. The only reason that these, these animals exist to get infected um, are because, uh, because we make it that way. Um, and if we were to stop doing it, we would dramatically reduce our risk. So do you think that in terms of the conversation, that that conversation is moving forward within, within kind of like government official? Or, I mean, no. so it hasn't in terms of pandemic. I mean, it certainly has in terms of human health. And there's mm-hmm. just been an explosion in the interest of, uh, of plant-based protein um, these days. I mean, look at the dairy case. I mean, there are, um, you know, massive dairy giants here in the States declaring bankruptcy because now there's this constellation of new consumer choices. If you provide consumers with a better product, they're going to buy it. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I mean, it's, yes, you can pass regulations to stop feeding, you know, slaughterhouse waste to cattle to reduce the risk of mad cow disease, or, you know, you can just provide people with healthy alternatives. You don't have to worry about contaminated cattle brains in your oat milk. So you, so you're an advocate for changing the consumer and changing people's um, mentalities. Then do you think that's an effective way of, of of bypassing the problem in the future? And, and look, and this is the same thing we're talking about with these um, uh, exotic animal markets in Asia. Mm-hmm. People are not going to stop eating rhino horns and tiger bones and pangolin scales and and bats. Um, uh, all the laws in the world aren't going to do that because there'll be a thriving black market trade, which may be even harder, um, uh, to keep, uh, tabs on. And so it's all about changing, um, the consumer's mindset. And there's been tremendous, um, uh, uh changes. Like, so for example, shark fin soup, I mean, used to be a, a very, uh, a popular dish, but, um, but a number of groups, Conservation groups worked very hard to change the mindset of people. And all of a sudden, shark fin soup went from this really prestigious thing that you serve at weddings to all of a sudden, like, you know, and like, you know, you carry a stigma. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, you know, all the laws in the world to protect sharks aren't going to matter if there's that demand out there, right? Um, and so, to, to stop the supply, we need to stop the demand. Um, and so let's make products that are so delicious, <laughs> right. Right? that are just, you know, so cheap, convenient, delicious, that it's just like they just beat out the competition. No problem. It's, it's a nice way. I think it's a nice way for us to maybe, to maybe round up what we've been talking about, because um, I know you're incredibly busy. And I suppose one of the final questions, there's, I guess there's a sense of irony, isn't there, that, that with the, the Wuhan meat market, we think that the intermediary host might have been a pangolin. Um, and one of the reasons the pangolin was in, in the market was because the scales are used for kind of like herbal medicine. And so there's the irony of people were going in there for, for medicine and what they've got is one of the worst infectious diseases that's ever plagued humanity in that sense. And so there is, a, there is definitely an irony in the way that we're all living because it's also about people going into supermarkets and stockpiling bacon and chicken and also <laughs> right, Cheetos, right. that same irony, right? So right. I think changing mindsets to those delicious products has to be the, 
the way. Um, and I sincerely hope that maybe after this outbreak, we do learn our lesson. Um, but I guess it's up to you know, people like yourself and hopefully myself to keep spreading that. And hopefully um, we can influence consumers to, to make better choices for themselves and for everyone, including the animals and the planet as well. But uh, yeah, thank you, Dr. Gregor. Absolutely. So happy to help. And what a, I mean, this is really, I mean, in terms of timing, there was already this surge of interest and hopefully this will just kind of take it over the top. Um, uh, the kind of selfish concern about themselves, their families, their communities will then translate into at least trying some of these products and then incorporating into their daily lives. And as they get better and better and cheaper and cheaper, and we will shift this away and, you know, knock off a number of global crises all, uh, all uh, at the end of our fork. Absolutely. And if I may make one recommendation at the end to any, any listeners is um, on Nutrition Facts on, on your YouTube channel, um, you recently re-uploaded the, the talk you did about a decade or so ago um, about how to prevent pandemics. Um, and it's definitely um, worth watching, although it is, it's, 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 it's a challenging listen when we, when we consider what we're going through now. But the, there is that moment at the end where you, you predicted the toilet paper crisis, didn't you? <laughs> and it, uh, it brings a smile to everyone's face in this sweet, ironic, potentially way. But um, uh. yeah. Excellent. uh, There's a whole month long series of uh, videos coming up on nutrition facts about the current pandemic and what we can do to prevent the ones in the future. So yeah, stay tuned. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Gregor. And thank you for all of your work as well. uh, And your inspiration. I appreciate you very much for that. Keep up the good work yourself. Thank you. Thank you.